Today on Quest, Carly Church joins me. She is a crisis intervention counselor, social service worker, and advocate for survivors of domestic sex trafficking. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, it's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and this is Season 2 of Quest. For those of you that might be new listeners, let me tell you a little about me. I'm the founder of Metatomics and the author of the best-selling book, Metatomics, The Grand Design. I'm a philosopher, a theorist, and a metaphysicist. I'm a perpetual pupil of theology and an expert in comparative religious study. I've also extensively researched the mind-body connection, anatomy, and physiology. I'm a researcher and a storyteller. And in order to tell this story, the research is necessary, and part of the research is the search. And that brings us to why I created the Quest podcast. A quest is a search for something, and this podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. To me, curiosity is part of what makes us human and there's still so much we don't know. There's joy in discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Quest Podcast. This is probably one of the most controversial topics I've talked about on the podcast. It's not an easy or pleasant subject, but today we're going to talk about it, and that topic is human trafficking. So today I have Toronto-based social service worker Carly Church joining me to talk about this and to share her own personal story. Hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Carly. Welcome to the Quest Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm definitely uh, happy to have you as a guest today. Um, this is a topic I've really wanted to get into for a while uh, on my podcast, and the topic is human trafficking. <clears throat> and uh, you have some experience with this. You have a personal story that you're going to tell about being involved in that. And I really wanted you to share your story today. But I wanted to, for people that aren't familiar with what human trafficking is, and I'm and I'm just as guilty of this because I didn't understand exactly how vast human trafficking was. And that's why it was a topic I really wanted to, to discuss. Define for my listeners, what is human trafficking? Um, so I always, I have, a, I have a, my own kind of cheating definition for human trafficking that just gives you the definition. And then I like to talk about like in detail, really what it looks like. Um, because I think movies and media really portray human trafficking to look one way, and it actually looks completely different than that. Um, so there's a there's like the UN's definition for human trafficking. A lot of um, uh, criminal codes have a definition for human trafficking. 
Um, but I have a cheating definition and it's really easy to remember. And the definition that I use for human trafficking is that there needs to be four elements present in order for human trafficking to exist. So there needs to be force, there needs to be fraud, there needs to be coercion, and it all needs to be facilitated by a third party or a group of people. So somebody has to be behind the scenes doing it to you and profiting from you. So again, the definition really is force, fraud, coercion facilitated by a third party. That just gives you a definition though of human trafficking. I think it's really important to understand what it actually looks like. Um, so I often uh, describe human trafficking in a, in a totally different way. And I do it by walking people through something that we call the stages of commercial exploitation, where again, there are four stages, um, the luring stage, the grooming and gaming stage, the coercion and manipulation stage, and then the full on exploitation stage. Um, so that's something that I think is incredibly important for people to understand and how that kind of, how the, how you meet somebody uh, and, you know, they get to know you in a way that maybe nobody else has taken the time to get to know you. Um, and they begin to treat you better than you feel anybody has ever treated you before. And then things shift. And then they begin to ask you to do things that you never thought you would do before. Uh, and you end up doing them. And most of them are quite horrific and traumatic. And what's interesting is that it's, it's very difficult to leave once those start. Um, and this, the stages of commercial exploitation, I think, really um, shows that psychological manipulation. So I'd like to walk you through those to paint. That Absolutely. Picture. Yeah, I really want to paint the picture of what human trafficking truly looks like. Um, and, and what I'm mostly talking about, too, just to, to give everybody an idea, is I'm talking about domestic sex trafficking. Um, that's the majority of what we see here in Canada. I'm actually from Canada, but it's also what we see the majority of um, in North America. Um, so there's many forms of human trafficking from forced labor to migrant workers, to uh, forced marriage, to organ harvesting, to international sex trafficking, to domestic sex trafficking. But today I'm gonna talk about domestic sex trafficking. Uh, the reason being is mostly because that's my area of expertise. Um, I was born and raised in Canada and I was trafficked within Canada. So that's considered domestic in, uh, domestic sex trafficking. Yeah. So really, these stages of commercial exploitation are really going to paint a picture of how this happens to um, people who are trafficked domestically. So the first stage is the luring stage. And then the luring stage, this is when your trafficker actually begins to assess your vulnerabilities. So a trafficker is looking for somebody who's vulnerable. They're looking for somebody who maybe doesn't live at home with their parents somebody who maybe um, is not having all of their basic needs met. Maybe somebody who accesses a shelter or a drop-in center. Um, they're looking for somebody who doesn't have brand name clothing or a brand new iPhone, somebody who's been bullied, somebody who struggles with eye contact um, or is socially awkward in certain situations. Um, that's who they're looking for. They're looking for those vulnerabilities. And once they assess that individual who's vulnerable and they kind of know who their target is, they then begin to test the waters. They put feelers out to see if this person's going to buy what they're selling. They do this by asking a million questions. And it does not feel like you're being interviewed and it does not feel like you're being interrogated. It feels incredibly special that for once somebody has stopped and noticed you were struggling and asked you about it. That for once somebody stopped and took time out of their life to listen to your life and learn about your life. It feels very, very good. They will ask you about your family, your friends, your struggles and your hopes and dreams for the future. And what they're really doing is they're gathering information that they're later gonna use against you. 
The other thing that they do in this first initial stage of luring is they're also going to look at every single one of your basic needs that are not currently being met. And once they understand what those basic needs are that are lacking in your life, you'll be moved to the next stage. The next stage is the grooming and gaming stage. We also call this the honeymoon stage. The reason we call it the honeymoon stage is I can tell you that 85% of the clients that I work with actually identify their trafficker to be their partner or are in fact in a loving relationship. They believe this person loves them. So in this grooming and gaming stage, they begin to meet every single one of your basic needs. If you told them that you did not have a safe place to stay, they are gonna offer you a safe place to stay. They're gonna take you shopping. They're gonna buy you clothes. They are going to uh, take you out to eat. They're going to wine and dine you. They might get your hair done, your nails done. They are going to shower you with compliments, boost your self-esteem, boost your self-worth. They're gonna introduce you to all their friends. They're gonna make you feel a part of something, that sense of belonging, that sense of family. They're gonna tell you they're gonna keep you safe. Nobody's gonna hurt you again. They're gonna protect you. They're also going to talk to you about a future together, plans that you guys are gonna to have together in the future. If drugs are involved, uh, they will give them to you freely in this stage. If they are not involved, they might stay that way or they could be introduced in a playful way. Whatever you need, I, I'll get for you. You going to that party tonight? What do you need? I'll go get it. Um, it is very difficult to see any red flags in this stage. The only red flag is, it, is really it is too good to be true and who wants to believe that it is too good to be true if nobody has treated you this well before. The red flags don't come in until the next stage. So the next stage is the coercion and manipulation stage. So this is when they're gonna give you all that love and affection and then they're gonna pull it all away. And then they're gonna give you all that love and attention and then they're gonna pull it all away. So it feels as if you're walking on eggshells. You're wondering, are they gonna have a good day today or are they gonna have a bad day today? You actually start to think in your mind, what did I do wrong? I must've done something wrong. You know that they're capable of treating you better than anybody has treated you before. So you believe you must have done something. You actually start to feel indebted in the relationship. You feel as if they have done so much for you and you haven't contributed back to them. So you're actually going to start to think in your mind of things that you might be able to offer in that relationship. And as soon as you start to offer things that you're comfortable doing, they're going to begin to stretch those boundaries. They're going to start to ask you to do things that you are not comfortable doing. They're gonna ask you to do things that maybe you've disclosed to them in the past that you aren't comfortable with, that are completely off limits or that you've never done. They're gonna to start to stretch your morals and your values and your boundaries. This could be done sexually or not sexually. Um, they could ask you to lie for them. They could ask you to look out while they commit a crime. They could ask you to um, take a charge for them. And immediately after you do that, they're gonna give you all that love and affection back. You go back to that honeymoon stage and then they pull it all away again. They ask you to do something else. They might ask you to um, send that naked picture they've been begging you for. They might ask you to make a video with them. They might ask you to have uh, sex with one of their friends. And again, immediately after you say yes, it goes back to that honeymoon stage. So now not only are they breaking down your morals, your values and, their, and your boundaries, but they're actually starting to desensitize you to certain sexual acts. They're starting to stretch your sexual boundaries. They're really preparing you for the sex trade. The other thing that they might do is something called conditioning where they'll have sex with you and shortly after they'll take you shopping or they'll have sex with you and shortly after take you to get your hair done, your nails done. And then that slowly gets replaced by cash. They'll have sex with you and they'll throw you $60 and they'll say, oh baby, that's amazing. You're so good at that. Go treat yourself, go do something nice for yourself. 
your brain actually begins to uh, associate sex with a reward, sex with money. So again, they're, they're really starting to prepare you for the sex trade. The last thing that they do in this stage is they are going to build a wedge between you and any of your healthy supports. Um, they are gonna pick fights with your friends. They are going to pick fights with your family. They're gonna pick out things that your family has done that you've disclosed to them very that hurt you. Um, they're gonna bring it up and they're gonna blow it up. And they're gonna talk about how they would never do something like that to you. They will always be there for you. They want to make you feel as if the only person you can depend on and the only person that loves you unconditionally is them. Um, I used to work with somebody where their trafficker actually used to go into their cell phone and delete any incoming messages from family and friends before she could see them. So she started to believe that nobody else cared about her, that only that trafficker was the one that she could depend on and would care for. That's when they have you exactly where you want, they want you. And this is when they're going to move you to the final stage, the full-on exploitation stage. And this is when they'll bring up the idea of working in the sex trade. And they could do so in a variety of different ways, um, but it is almost always either very, very direct or the complete opposite, incredibly insidious. And if it's direct, they will literally say something to you like, look at all this stuff I've done for you. The clothes I bought you, the condo you're staying in, the food I've gotten you, um, the drugs I've provided. You in fact owe me money. And if you don't pay me back, I will no longer do this for you or I will hurt you or I will hurt your family. They know every single thing about you. Um, they learned that in the luring stage. So they know exactly what to say to get you to take your first client. And once you do, they have all the ammo they need to use against you to keep you there. If they go the insidious route, they are gonna in fact play off all that information they gained from you in the luring stage. And maybe you told them way back in the luring stage that your dream for the future was to one day create your own loving supportive family. Maybe you told them that growing up, you never had that. And that's all you ever wanted was to one day get married, buy a house, have kids and really create that loving, supportive environment. Or they're gonna say something to you like, you know that life you wanna have? That wedding you want, those kids you want, that house you want. I love you so much and I don't wanna wait any longer. I can't picture my life without you. In order for us to do that, we're gonna have to make some money. I got this crazy idea, we'll make stacks of cash, only have to do it for a couple months, and no matter what, I'm gonna love you, no matter what, I'm gonna be there for you. Of course, you're gonna say yes. They just sold you a dream. They sold you your exact dream that you told them way back in the luring stage. And again, once you take your first trick, they got everything they need to use against you to keep you there. This is what domestic sex trafficking looks like. It is incredibly psychological. It is thought out. Um, it is precise. It is planned. Um, this is what it looks like. And this, what's, this is what makes it so difficult for somebody to exit a trafficking situation when they believe, if only I do this, maybe it'll go back to when it was once good. Wow, that's incredible. The, um. I wasn't, so we're going to, I wanted you to tell your, your personal story in a moment, but one of some of the things I didn't know what people are actually trafficked for. And uh, I, I've, I was reading that people are trafficked for labor, mm -hmm. prostitution, marriage, um, for surrogacy, for pornography, the sex trade, drug mules, organs are taken, and sometimes just for torture. 
it was incredible to me the just how much how many different types of human trafficking there really are. Mm -hmm. Yes. Your particular story about being trafficked was sex trade. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Would you mind telling your personal story? Sure, I can definitely bring you through. Um, I'll tell my story in a way I think that uh, I'll walk you through my story as if I was taking you through the stages of commercial exploitation. And I sure. think why I tell my story that way is I think that it's um, it's a bit easier for people to relate um, through emotions and feelings rather than details. Sure. Um, so I'll definitely tell my story. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background because I think that's really important to know because what made me susceptible to being trafficked? You know, what were my vulnerabilities that really stood out to my trafficker and, and why was I targeted? Uh, and I think this is something important for people to know because it can, it can really happen to anybody, um, right. especially right. young people. All young people have so many vulnerabilities, you know, from uh, being bullied at school, having problems at home, having low self-esteem or lack of self-worth, not feeling adequately loved by your caregivers or unconditionally loved maybe growing up in poverty, um, having little to no socioeconomic opportunities, um, being racialized, being from the LGBTQ community, just being female makes you more susceptible to this crime. So it's important to understand those vulnerabilities that are susceptible um, for somebody to be in traffic. And in my situation, um, you know, I had many vulnerabilities growing up. I grew up in a very, very small community um, way up north. Um, there was little to no social support system in my in my hometown. Uh, there was one little health unit, uh, and if you showed up at that health unit on a on a Wednesday afternoon, everybody knew that you had either mental health or addiction um, concerns, and you became talk of the town. So from the time I was a little kid, I learned that you don't share um, any negative things that are going on in your life with anybody, because then people talk. Uh, and I grew up in a pretty seemingly normal family. I grew up with both my parents. I have two older siblings. You know, my, my dad worked very hard to put a roof over our head and food in our stomachs. Um, and for that, he was never around. Uh, I don't have many memories with my father. And it's not because he wanted that. It's because he worked really, really hard um, to give us the life that he thought we deserved. Uh, but in my little kid mind growing up, I thought it meant he didn't love me. Um, I thought, you know, he didn't come to my school events. He didn't uh, come to my sport events. Um, you know, we didn't do anything one-on-one -on -one together. So I thought he didn't love me. And then on top of that, my mom struggled with her own issues. Uh, and for that, she was never emotionally available. Uh, so I didn't have the mom who, when I came home from school, noticed I had a bad day. I didn't have a mom who asked me how my day was. You know, my parents did the best they could with what they had. Um, but for whatever reason, I didn't feel... Um, adequately loved. I didn't feel cared for. I felt different. I felt unlovable. Um, I thought I was a mistake. Um, so I lived with that and I never asked for help because, and I never reached out because I learned from a little, a young age that you don't ask for help. And I wasn't able to talk to my mom and I never really saw my dad. So I didn't know how to ask for help. And then things increased in my life. Things, things kind of took a turn and I experienced sexual violence at a young age. Um, and I held that in because again, I didn't know how to ask for help. So rather than asking for help, I began to act out. And that was my way of, of almost screaming for help. And nobody seemed to notice. Nobody asked me why my behavior changed. Nobody asked me um, what was going on. I was just punished. 
by grade six, I had a permanent desk in the hallway. By grade eight, I had to do all my work in the uh, in the library. And once high school came around, I just didn't go because I didn't think anybody cared. So very quickly, I actually um, started to use drugs at a very young age. Uh, and that kind of, to me at that point in my life, I thought it was my saving grace. I thought I found the cure to all my problems. Uh, it erased the pain of all my past. It made me feel um, uh, okay in my own skin. So very quickly, my whole life revolved around the getting and using of drugs. Um, I knew I had a problem. I, I would say I was a full-blown drug addict by the time I was 15. Uh, when I was 17, I decided I had to do something about this. But again, I couldn't ask for help. Um, so instead, I wanted to fix myself. So I went away to school thinking that a new city, you know, uh, I took a program that was in the helping profession thinking I would fix myself. I was wrong. Uh, instead, um, everything got worse. Um, and what happened first for me is I started to engage in uh, what I call survival sex work or circumstantial sex work because I had no money and I had a serious drug addiction and was often um, vicariously housed. I didn't have a, a permanent address often that I exchanged sex for my drug of choice or a place to stay or money. I did not have a trafficker at this point, but I was definitely involved in an exploitive situation. And this is kind of, you know, where my story of trafficking really takes place is I did that for a while. Um, somebody finally noticed, my sister did notice, she sent me away to treatment. I went to treatment for four months. Um, and then uh, I continued to battle with that and a lot of the trauma that I had endured um, throughout my life. Um, and then I found myself in a new city uh, and I had, I felt as if I had relapsed and I felt as if everybody had given up on me. Um, at this point, I hadn't been in contact with my family for several months. Nobody knew where I was. Um, I felt like everybody had given up on me and really I had started to give up on myself. Uh, and I was in an apartment and all of a sudden sitting in that apartment, these two um, men walked in. Uh, they were charming. They were handsome. You know, they... Uh, whatever you have in your mind of what a typical trafficker looks like, throw it out of your mind. Uh, anybody can be a trafficker. Um, but right away, when they walked through that door, um, they noticed me. Uh, and they made me feel different. Um, they made me feel special. Right away, one of them walked over to me and he came over. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You're too beautiful to be here. Nobody had noticed me in so long. Um, and now somebody took time out of their life to ask me about my, about, uh, about my own. Uh, he sat with me for several hours and he asked me about my life. He asked me about my friends, my family, my struggles, my hopes and dreams for the future. But most importantly, what he asked me, um, and it'll sound crazy, but it, it blew my mind in the moment is he said, what happened to you, Carly, in your past that causes you to use drugs today? And all I could think was, why has nobody asked me this question before? And I told him everything. Uh, my trafficker was the per first person I disclosed my sexual violence to and disclosed so many things to. He was the first person I spoke many things that had happened to me in my life out loud. And he did not respond in the way that I had been so fearful somebody would respond if I made that disclosure. He was empathetic. He was compassionate. He was caring. He asked appropriate questions. He related. Um, he made me feel comfortable. Uh, and so I continued to talk to him. I told him everything. He gained so much information from me in that first stage, in that luring stage. 
obviously he later used it against me, but in that moment, it felt incredible. Uh, the other thing he did, obviously, is look at all my basic needs that were not being met. And there were many. When he met me in that apartment, I hadn't eaten in three days. I hadn't slept in three days. I hadn't showered in three days. I didn't have a working cell phone. I had no money. I had a backpack with only one change of clothes, and I was withdrawing off my drug of choice. So my basic needs were immediate. Um, I actually thought at that moment, before, before I had met them, I thought I was in that apartment pretty much just waiting to die. Uh, and then he came in and he swooped me off my feet. Uh, and very quickly, it moved to the grooming and gaming stage. The exact same night I met him, he gave me a safe place to stay. Um, on the way to that safe place, he bought me food. When we got to the safe place, I could lock the door. I got to have a shower. I got to change my clothes. I got to sleep that night without one eye open the whole day, the whole evening. Um, he made me feel safe. He made me feel comfortable. Uh, the next morning he took me shopping. He bought me clothes. He showered me with compliments. He boosted my self-esteem and he boosted my self-worth. He told me I was gonna be a part of his crew, that I was gonna ride with him. He gave me that sense of family, that sense of belonging, that being a part of something. I had been on my own for a very long time. And now I felt like I had finally met somebody who was gonna be there for me. I was gonna be that, a part of something. He also told me that he would never let anybody hurt me again. That those things that I told him, he would never allow happen to me again. And the other thing that he did that was very important is he um, provided me with my drug of choice. With at that point in my life was a huge basic need for me. I thought the only reason I was even attempting to get through life is because I had that crutch. And now he gave it to me freely. He never also, he never uh, said anything that he didn't follow through with. He never said he would do something and not do it. I cannot stress to you enough that in this stage, he made it feel as if this was the best my life had ever been. And my life was not always horrific. I have a lot of good memories growing up. I do have a family who loves me. You know, I, I have memories that were, uh, were good. Um, you know, my needs were met for the most part. Um, but because he found out every little thing in that luring stage that I felt I was lacking in life and then gave it to me in that grooming and gaming stage, it felt as if this was the best my life had ever been. And I would have done anything to keep it in this stage. Uh, was there red flags for me in this stage? There might have been. But what I did was I just pushed any of those feelings of, of you know, that something might be wrong. I pushed it away. That gut feeling that, you know, this might be too good to be true. I pushed it away because I wanted so badly for this to be true. I wanted so badly for somebody to love me. I wanted so badly for somebody to take care of me and be there for me. So when those red flags did start to come in, when it moved to that coercion and manipulation stage, when things no longer came free for me anymore, um, again, I tried to justify it. I tried to say like, oh, he's done so much for me. You know, I have to do some things for him. Uh, you know, a relationship should be 50-50. You know, I need to also contribute if I'm going to be a part of their crew. Um, so he would ask me to do things. And at first, they were things that were more of just like made me a bit uncomfortable or I was a bit nervous to do. And then slowly things shifted even more where my drug of choice no longer came free anymore. And in order for me to access my drug of choice, choice he would have me do something. And it was almost always sexual. And it was almost always something that was outside of my boundaries, something that he knew I was uncomfortable doing, or in fact that I shared with him that I hated doing. 
um, or that was actually quite traumatizing because it was forced upon me before. Now he was making me do those things all over again and then rewarding me for them with my drug of choice. Um, the other thing that really he did in this um, coercion manipulation stage is he really psychologically isolated me. He didn't have to physically isolate me. Um, I had no contact with my family. They didn't know where I was at that point. Um, there might've even been a missing persons report out for me. So he didn't have to build a wedge between any of my family or friends, but he built a wedge in a different way, or at least made me even more psychologically dependent on him. Um, he spoke a different language than I did. And he knew that I craved being a part of something. I just wanted to, to be, have that sense of family. And he knew that. So he had a key card to my hotel and he would come in um, with the other individual uh, whenever they wanted to. And I had a typical hotel room. It had two beds. It had a little table with, a, with two chairs. Uh, and they would walk in and they wouldn't even acknowledge my presence. It was like I was invisible. They purposely would walk in. They'd walk past me. They wouldn't look at me. They wouldn't acknowledge me. And they'd go sit at the, the little table. And they'd start to speak amongst themselves in a different language. And I craved so badly to be a part of that that they no longer had to ask me to do the things that they knew I was uncomfortable with. I now offered to do them as I just wanted to feel a part of something. I just wanted them to like me. I just wanted them to love me and take care of me. Um, so they had me exactly where they wanted me. So very quickly, again, it moved to the full-on exploitation stage. Uh, and they brought up the idea of me working the sex trade in a very direct way. They did pretty much say, you know, look at this hotel you've been staying in, the clothes I bought you, the drugs I've given you, the food I buy you every day. Uh, I kept track. This is how much money you owe me and you're going to have to pay me back. Uh, and he pretty much, gave, he laid it out to me as a choice. Um, and, and he was very smart in doing it this way because he made me pick between two options. So in my mind, I thought I consented. I thought it was my fault that this was happening to me because I said yes. I didn't realize what the true definition of consent was. He gave me two options. Those were my only two options. I couldn't have said no to both. He said, you can either dance or you can escort. And I chose escorting and I chose it for a couple of reasons. One, I thought, you know what? I'm not on display. It's behind closed doors. I'll feel a little bit more comfortable. Uh, the second reason I chose escorting is I thought, you know, I had done circumstantial sex work in the past. I kind of know how to navigate it. I'll be okay. I can survive. And the third reason I chose it is I thought I'd have a sense of control. I thought I would control who was coming to my hotel room door. I thought I would control how many people I would have sex with a day. I thought I would control what services I would provide. I thought I would control how much money I would charge. But as soon as I chose escorting, all of that changed. They took my photos. They posted my ad online. They put their cell phone number on that ad. They took the phone calls. They decided who I would see. They decided how many people I would have sex with a day. They decided what services I would provide and they decided how much money I would charge. I hated every minute of it. It was the most horrific and traumatic experience of my life. But as crazy as it sounds, my life was still better than before I had met them. I had a roof over my head. I had food in my stomach. I wasn't withdrawing in the streets in the freezing cold all by myself. I would have never walked out of that hotel room door on my own. Physically, I could have. I was not locked in the room. I was not tied up. Uh, my pimps were not there 24-7. Physically, I could have opened my hotel room door and I could have walked out. 
I could have went to the lobby. I could have asked for help. I could have had somebody call the police. I never would have. Um, and it's really hard sometimes for people to understand this piece because it was horrific. Um, and, and there was things that happened that uh, really affected my life and, and, and caused a lot of trauma in my life. But I would have never walked out of that door. And I have three reasons why I would have never left um, without help or without support. And after working with young people in the same or similar situation to mine over the last six years, um, these are the three reasons why it's so difficult to leave and why it's not as easy as saying you're in a bad situation, let's get you out of here. The first reason I didn't leave was the most obvious and it was the fear. Um, I was afraid of them. There was some physical violence in my situation, not a whole lot, but enough to instill that fear that I knew that what they were capable of. And all I could think is if I walk out of this hotel room door and they catch me, what are they going to do to me? That fear was real. More so than that, though, and the second reason I didn't leave was the fear of the unknown. If I walk out of this door, where am I going to go? Where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to get my next meal? Where am I going to get my next fix? And who is ever going to love me again after this? Who is ever going to take care of me? That is much scarier than they were. And then the final reason I didn't leave and the strongest reason I didn't leave was the psychological hold that they had on me. That trauma bond was unbelievable. They picked me up when I was at my worst. Um, they found me uh, when I had given up on my life completely. I truly believe uh, in that moment, it felt as if they had saved my life. Uh, still to this day, looking back, I wonder if they didn't take me out of that apartment I, I was in, um, would I have died there? So that trauma bond was unbelievable. They saved me. They then treated me better than anybody had ever treated me before. They got to know me in a way that nobody had taken the time to get to know me before. And then they started to do things that I never thought they would do, where it became very confusing and scary. Um, and then would give me back that honeymoon stage and then take it away and give it back. That trauma bond and that psychological hold is very difficult to explain. Um, the best way I really explain the trauma bond and how difficult was to leave and how strong that hold was that they had on me is I always tell a story. Um, and I think I tell this story, uh, I think it's easier for people to relate through stories, um, but also because everybody I've ever worked with has one of these stories. They're all different. The details of everybody's story is different, but each story sums up that trauma bond for them. And my story takes place after I took my very first trip and after he left the hotel room, my pimp came in the room and he sat down on the bed beside me and he looked at me in the eyes and it was so genuine. Every single time I tell this story, I can in fact picture that moment as if it was yesterday. I can picture the way the room was, the smell, everything. Uh, and for a split second, when I picture that moment, it still feels just as genuine. That's how strong it was in the moment. Logically, I know it wasn't, but that's how strong it was. He sat there on the bed beside me. He looked at me in the eyes and he said, Carly, I am so proud of you. And he said it because I told him way back in the luring stage that the only thing I had ever wanted to hear growing up that I ever wanted to hear my parents say is that they were proud of me. And now he said it. It didn't matter anymore who was proud of me or what they were proud of me for. Somebody was finally proud of me. I was finally good at something. I was going to do whatever it took to hear that over and over and over again. Because not only was he meeting every single one of my basic needs, he just met a need that I had been longing for 
my entire life. Was I really willing to walk out that door not knowing if I would ever get that again? Absolutely not. He found my crack. Everybody's is different, but he found mine. He filled it and I would have done anything to keep it that way. Again, this is what domestic sex trafficking looks like. It does not look like the movies. This is what it looks like. And this is why it's so difficult um, to have somebody exit successfully. And it's because of the time spent to develop that trauma bond with somebody. That is powerful. How were you found and what happened after you were found? Good question. So like I said, I would have never left on my own. I just wouldn't have. Um, I didn't think there was anything else for me. Um, I became completely, um, you know, complacent. Uh, I thought this was the best my life was ever going to get. Um, I thought I was a bad person. I thought I didn't deserve anything. Um, so I would have never walked out of that door on my own. I actually got out because of an undercover police officer. Um, there, they had, he worked within a human trafficking unit within that police department and they saw my ad online. Uh, and it had a lot of red flags on it that I might be uh, a victim of human trafficking. So they actually booked a fake appointment with me through my traffickers. Uh, and that detective showed up at my hotel room door and I opened the door and immediately he showed his badge, uh, but he was very non-threatening. He was in plain clothing. Um, you know, his partner was there off to the side. There was only two of them. The first thing that came out of his mouth after he showed me his badge was you are not in any trouble. We are just here to make sure that you're safe and that you're okay. And if you need anything at all. So right away, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, like I, I was still scared, but I, I thought, wow, he might, somebody else might actually care. Um, so I invited him in. Uh, he obviously did his police stuff first. He made sure there was nobody hiding in the room, that I didn't um, have any weapons. And then what he did was, uh, it'll sound crazy, but he did exactly what my traffickers did in that luring stage. He sat on the other bed and he talked to me. He talked to me like I was a human being. He talked to me like he would his sister or his daughter. He asked me about my life. He asked me about my family. He asked me about my struggles. He asked me about my hopes and dreams for the future. He sat there and talked to me for almost an entire hour. He did not judge me for what I was doing. He did not tell me what I was doing was wrong and he did not try to save and rescue me. He sat there and he talked to me. Um, he made me feel like he cared, like he was genuine. Obviously at that point, I did not tell him uh, I was being trafficked. He asked, um, my traffickers had trained me on what to say if a police officer came to the door. Um, so I told him I was an independent sex worker. Nobody was making me do this and I kept all my money. Um, in Canada, sex, uh, selling sex is actually legal as long as you're over the age of 18. Um, so that's what I said. Uh, and he, I didn't realize at the time, but he had picked up on a lot of red flags in my hotel room, uh, but he did leave. Uh, and when he left, he, he actually uh, gave me his cell phone number. He wrote it on a scrap piece of paper in my, from my purse and he handed it to me. And this is really important what he said to me. He handed it to me and he didn't say like, when you wake up little girl and realize you're being trafficked, give me a call. He handed it to me and he said, if you need anything, you can call me. He said, if you need to just get out and go for a drive, you can call me. If you haven't eaten and you need something to eat, I will bring you something to eat. If you need to vent at two in the morning, you can call me. 
If you need cigarettes, you can call me. If you need a ride somewhere, you can call me. So right away I thought, okay, maybe he actually cares. So he left. Um, they obviously did a lot more police work behind the scenes because there were so many red flags in my situation. Um, I didn't realize at the time, but they eventually found out that the, where the two men were that were trafficking me, um, they were arrested and taken away. And then that detective came back. And when he came back and he told me they were arrested, um, I was not relieved. I was not happy. Um, I was extremely angry because he just took away the only two people that were meeting my basic needs. He took away the only two people that showed uh, at some point that they cared um, and listened to me. So now he better make sure that he can replace all of those needs that were met uh, by my traffickers. It is in fact fundamentally unfair ask somebody to leave their trafficker if you cannot find alternative ways to meet every single one of their basic needs. If you do that and you take them out of there and you don't have those basic needs in place, they will go back. And when they go back, it's going to be much worse. So when he came back and I had my complete meltdown and I cried and I yelled, um, he picked me up and he drove me to the hospital, uh, which let me, told me that he cared more about my well-being and my safety than he did about catching the bad guy. From there, he um, introduced me to loving, supportive, caring people. Um, they helped to work together to find me a safe place to go that night. Uh, they drove me to that safe place. The next morning, a victim services worker met me at that safe place. She brought me a cell phone so I could reconnect with my supports uh, and my family. Um, they made sure I got on financial assistance that day. They uh, helped me apply for another drug treatment center. When I got into that drugs treatment center, they drove me there. Um, that detective and that victim services worker gave me their phone number. So on phone time, I had somebody to call. And every time I phoned, they pick up, picked up. When my treatment center was completed, they helped me find uh, a sober living house. They drove me there. They moved me in. When uh, that expired after a year, they helped me find a specific housing for somebody who had exited a trafficking situation. Again, they drove me there, helped me move in. Um, they provided me wraparound services. They got me my first job as a peer support worker, helping other individuals who had been trafficked. They provided me with wraparound services. Um, they were there for me unconditionally, which is very important. Um, I was not always doing well. So they were there for me when I was doing well, and they were there for me when I was not doing well. I've been out of the sex trade for over six years now. I have not been clean off drugs for over six years. So when I had a relapse or when I took steps back, they didn't get frustrated, they didn't give up, their support stayed the same and they were there for me no matter what. I still have that support network today and they're still involved in my life today. The only way for somebody to successfully exit a trafficking situation is to be able to have those wraparound services that are catered to their unique needs. There's also not a cookie cutter one size fit all for each individual exiting a trafficking situation. So it's very important to cater those um, supports and services by listening to that survivor of what they need and what they want. And I was incredibly lucky um, because I got that. And I can't say that for everybody. Um, I lucked out. I got an amazing detective and I got an amazing support person um, who really were a, a, a huge uh, part of me being able to um, work towards where I am today. Wow. How long, I want to know, how long were you actually in uh, being in being trafficked was that was this a three year time frame that all this went on or was it just did it all happen over a year how long were you in so, that system? so it's I so I was 
um, doing like exploitive and circumstantial sex work for probably over a year. So I was involved in that lifestyle um, for quite a while, almost two years, I guess. Um, and I had come into contact with traffickers on and off throughout that time as well. Um, but this story that I tell that really showcases that trafficking and the stages of commercial exploitation, I was actually only with them for a few months. Um, wow. And a lot happened in that period of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. For, sure. for sure. What was uh, your relationship like with your family once you, you were able to exit this? Um, I think so. It took time for me. Um, they were great. You know, they really were. Um, they didn't ask details. They didn't uh, judge. I never. I have never once felt judged by my family. And I, you know, uh, I talk a lot about how I don't talk a lot, but there was things in my my life growing up that I wish my parents could have done or could have said or been there for me in a way. But one thing I have to always um, give my family a lot of credit for is not once did I ever feel judged by them. Um, and I think that's very important. So when I okay. exited, um, the first person I told was my mom. Uh, and her reaction maybe wasn't uh, the best, but very quickly she recovered. Um, I had, they wanted to be there more than I allowed them to. Um, I had to do my own thing. I didn't trust anybody and I didn't trust my family. And to be honest, I blamed my family a lot. When I first got out, um, I was bitter and I thought it was their fault. Um, They didn't love me. They weren't there for me. Um, They didn't take care of me in the way that they should have. And I put a lot of blame on my parents. Um, today, I, I feel a lot differently. My parents did the best that they could um, with what they had. But in that moment, that's how I felt when I first left. Um, so it yeah. took me time. It took me more time than it did for them. Uh, today, my rela- my parents have now split since um, uh, they're not together anymore. But my dad is probably my biggest support. Um, he actually, I wrote him a big letter of all the things he did wrong and all those things. But he has since really worked really hard on building our relationship and my dad now tells me he's proud of me on a daily basis and it's actually become annoying. Um, so <laughs> that's how uh, good our relationship has, has been. My mom is you know, there for me in the way that she knows how to be there for me. Um, but I always tell people I have my, my blood family. I have you know, that family. And then I also have my chosen family. Um, and they're both there for different reasons. You know, my chosen family, that is my, my support network is really there to, to, um, you know, really remind me of the strength it took for me to leave, you know, and really, um, you know, pick up on those signs when things aren't going so well and for me to confide in and for that really strong emotional support. And then my, my blood family, my biological family, um, they're there for a lot of other things. Um, you know, in part, they do offer that emotional support as well, but, um, they're there for, I, they're there for other reasons. And I love my family unconditionally, uh, and I wouldn't change them, um, at all. Um, and I'm just very grateful that I have them in my life today and that they did stand by me. Uh, and I'm sure it's hard for them sometimes that like I do talk a lot in the media and, and my story is quite public and I'm sure that affects them often too. Um, as people now know, um, kind of what happened to me, um, and, and I know that they have a lot of regret and, and that's probably very difficult for them. And, and I'm just very lucky that, you know, they, um, they accept me for who I am and they support me in my decisions of, of sharing my story to help other girls um, and other boys who might be going through the exact same thing. Yeah. Let's talk about what you do now in assisting not only the police, but helping victims of trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So today I, 
my job is very, um, it's hard to explain because I have so many different pieces of what I do. Um, but my role has changed a lot um, over the last few years. Um, but a big piece of my, my role today that is something that I talk about a lot publicly is, is I'm actually, I work very closely um, with our human trafficking unit here within my local police department. Uh, the reason being is because we really found that best practices is a, what we call a client-centered approach. Um, so any time that police meet with a potential victim or survivor of human trafficking, I attend with them. And the reason is, is it gives somebody the opportunity to choose if they want to talk to police or if they just want to work with me and, and access supports and services through myself. And I work with them completely confidential and separate from the police if they choose not to work with police. Some people have had bad experiences with police and they're not ready to go that route, but still want support. So it's a, it's a really big piece. And then a part of my role is eventually we, I work with them and, and just by working with them and having the choice to report to police or not, um, they, they end up, uh, I, I become a bridge a bit of, of support. Since I started with the team, um, with the human trafficking unit, um, their stats have went up 93% of people wanting to report and it's in their hands. They get to choose to report. So the, this police unit, the way we work, they do not um, pressure anybody to give a statement. They don't force anybody to give a statement. It is at the end of their choice. Um, and they've seen great success in that. So a big part of my role is that, but also on top of that is um, being able to provide those wraparound services. Um, so I offer um, a safe place to stay. I offer um, access to funding to be able to meet those basic needs of clothes and food and um, therapy and tattoo removal and dental care and transportation and anything you can pretty much think of that would be a unique need for somebody that they need in order to get out. Um, I can do that piece, but then on top of that, it's also the emotional support. Um, I walk beside them. Uh, I listen to them. Um, I help them reach the goals that they've set out to themselves. I do not impose my goals on them. Uh, I'm there to support them in whatever it is that they need. Um, and that's another big piece of my role. And then obviously another huge part is advocacy. Um, I'm a huge advocate. I, I share my story on many platforms to bring, I've pretty much dedicated my entire life to bringing awareness to human trafficking and to remove that stigma um, to really start to ignite change um, and, and make change at a higher level. I sit at a lot of uh, round tables and working groups um, to try and change policies um, that will best support individuals who have been trafficked or who are um, at a high risk of being trafficked. I see. I see. Um, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think, has social media made human trafficking easier? Or what about like dating apps like Tinder or Bumble? Are these things a threat? So uh, I always say in my presentations, I, like where are people recruited from? And the top one is um, the internet, social media, dating apps. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is very easy. There's a couple of reasons why it's very easy for a trafficker to sit behind a computer screen and reach out to multiple young people over some form of social media platform uh, and hope one or two bite. The other reason why it's su such um, a, uh, like a, a strong way for traffickers to reach people is whether youth realize it or not, they put their whole lives on social media, which means also traffickers are able to see their vulnerabilities. Their vulnerabilities are very apparent on their social media. Um, so it's a very easy in 
to start that conversation um, to really see those vulnerabilities and where they can kind of swoop in and offer things. And then when it comes to dating apps and dating sites, half the work is really done for the trafficker. They already know that somebody's looking for a relationship. So they're going to pretend to be that relationship and be the best relationship possible until it gets to that coercion and manipulation stage when things start to shift and people start to think I must have done something wrong. If only I do this, it'll go back to where it was before. So social media, the internet has definitely blown up and it is, is one of the most common um, forms of recruitment for traffickers. It's interesting when you mentioned that human trafficking isn't like the movies at all, which I think is a common way in which people think that it happens. Um, and, you know, you, what you mentioned with your personal story is, you know, nothing like I've seen in, in a movie like this, you know, it's, it's violent, it's a van pulling up and someone's being abducted from, you know, someplace in Las Vegas and they're taken off and held in a dungeon, basically. Like it's terrible, the Hollywood way of spinning this. And it just doesn't seem that way at all. And uh, it's, it's really uh, amazing to me. I have some, uh, some statistics from Canada that it's estimated that there are 17,000 people living in conditions of modern slavery in Canada. And, um, and it goes on to say that 93% of sex trafficking in Canada is domestic. And it mentions indigenous women make up 50% of sex trafficking, although they only make up 4% of the Canadian female population, which is insane to hear. Um, and then I also read another study about uh, reported cases in Ontario that 93% of the victims are female. Um, and 72% of the female trafficking victims are under the age of 25 and can be as young as 12 years old. Yeah, so some of those, I, like I like some statistics and I don't like other statistics. Um, uh. So a lot of our statistics right now are being gathered through law enforcement, which is great. Um, I'm, I'm happy that they've taken that on, but the downfall to that is not everybody reports to police. Um, I think I think my average clients, one in five report to police. And then when you add in more vulnerable, vulnerable populations like individuals who are indigenous, um, racialized, LGBTQ, male, um, they actually, that number goes on about, I believe it's about one in 12 report to police. So that number of 17,000 Canadians being trafficked in Canada today is actually, you could probably safely multiply that number by 10. Uh, and wow. that's what I always say. And then um, the, the stats for Ontario, super accurate, I think, uh, as accurate as we can really get. Uh, the majority of people who are being trafficked in, in Ontario today are, um, are female and they are under the age of 25. Um, I think that there are more males being trafficked than we have the numbers for. And again, I think it's because they fit into that more vulnerable category where we're not um, accurately collecting those statistics. Wow, incredible. I was surprised that in the United States, human trafficking wasn't illegal until the year 2000, <laughs> which is a, like mind boggling to me that this wasn't something that was addressed much earlier than that. And um, and it's, a, it's very frightening. You know, I don't know if in the United States, the, like you were so lucky with how the, the, how the police worked with you. I'm not sure if, if Americans would be that lucky with how police are here. 
And uh, I, I fear that a lot of people in the same situation would just immediately be taken to jail and it would be ever be, would be hard for them to ever really fully escape that cycle. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that's why here in Canada, we took on a different, we took on the Nordic model where um, the decriminalization of, of sex work. So um, there is no laws around prostitution, um, around selling sex. Um, and we did that so that um, sex workers would have more rights and would be able to access supports. Um, and, and often we identified that the majority of people who are working in the sex trade um, are often being exploited or trafficked. Um, and if, if somebody's being criminalized for something that is out of their control and they're forced to be, they're forced to do, they're not receiving the, the supports that they need. Um, so it was, uh, the laws were changed here also not that long ago um, to reflect that. Um, and that's where our support system has been able to change based on, on the, our laws changing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that you are in a place in your life now where you are at a good norm in your life? Do you feel you'll still have therapy for years to come? Is this traumatic event past you? Will you always be working at this? Where are you at like that, you know, in a mental capacity? Um, I always say to people, like, uh, no matter what, I'm, I'm going to be in what I, we call the maintenance stage. Um, I can't erase what happened in my past. It'll always be there. Um, but I definitely, I've done a lot of work on myself and I continue to have to. Um, but my mindset really has changed in a way where um, what my healing was and, and what works for me is that I truly believe that um, what happened to me, yes, was negative. But today I have the opportunity to flip it to a positive. And if telling my story um, helps one other person, then what happened to me has purpose. Um, and it really, it really starts to, to make my life easier. I'm not saying that things can't trigger me or that I don't have tough days sometimes or that things don't come up for me. But also I know that in, in most people's lives that can happen as well. Um, so I've been able to do a lot of work and really focus on what, um, what works for me and, and what keeps me going. And, and a big piece of that I found, and it's not for everybody, but it is being able to share my story in the hopes that, um, it, it causes change and it helps other people. Um, so that's why every opportunity I get, I share my story because it's in fact part of my healing. Um, and I Absolutely. think I've gotten to this point because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, Carly, you're an amazing person. You have an amazing story. And, and your outreach now um, is just as amazing. You really are helping people. And I'm, I'm truly thankful that you shared your story with my listeners. It's very compelling. You know, I usually talk a lot more through my interviews, but I just had to just listen to this. It was just, um, you know, mind numbing to me to hear that and to hear you go through that. And I just, I couldn't imagine a situation like that. Um, you know, for myself or a family member or anything, just any person um, going through that is just horrific. Um, so I appreciate you you telling my listeners about that. Is there is there a way people can reach you, find out more about you? Are you on social media or how can people find out more about what you do? Yeah, I'm definitely on social media. It's, um, I don't, my Facebook is, is not private, so I'm very easy to find on there. Um, and then also on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Um, if somebody reaches out, I will get back to them on there. So those are the best places to reach out. Um, uh, I'm, if you, if you type in my name in Google, um, other things that I've done have, will definitely come up. 
Um, and there should be some um, uh, contact information on all those as well to be able to reach yeah. out. And you have a great uh, TEDx talk out there. So people that are listening, go go check that out on YouTube because she says a lot of the stuff she said in this, but uh, but even more. And uh, it's really, really nice to watch. Carly, thanks for coming out today and, and talking with us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really grateful that I got this opportunity to be able to um, to kind of bring some more awareness to, to human trafficking. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, let's talk soon. Take care, okay? Okay, bye. Bye-bye. There you have it. My interview with Carly Church. Wow, what an extraordinary story that was. Really, uh, really amazing to hear her talk about that. I wanted to say, uh, I have some statistics here. In 2019, the United States had 11,500 human trafficking cases reported. The most common types of trafficking were sex trafficking, in which there were 8,248 reports with the most common venues being illicit massage and spa businesses and pornography. There are more than 4 million victims of sex trafficking globally, and 1.2 million children are trafficked every year. That is an absolutely shameful and terrifying statistic for any person, especially parents. I'll see you next week on Quest. Thank you for listening to Quest. Please be sure to rate and review this podcast. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metacomics at metacomics.org or find us on social media for other unique content. And make sure to pick up a copy of the book that started a spiritual revolution, Metacomics The Grand Design available for sale online and at most major bookstores.